Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick, and I'm back from MRC, but my voice has not fully recovered. It is a bazillion times better than it was just even two days ago. That's what happens when you spend six full days talking pretty much from wake up to whenever bedtime was each night in the desert. At least it's not squeaky anymore. So I felt like it was a good enough day as any to hop on my microphone and record the intro for this episode. On Thursday, I will be providing a much more detailed overview of my own MRC experience as well as what some of the takeaways were from other attendees that that were able to be there. I know a lot of you who were able to attend have some serious FOMO, and I did my best via LinkedIn, and I will do my best via this week's episodes to try to ease that a little bit. You do have a little under a year to plan on attending Vegas 23 for the Merchant Risk Council, so I hope that you add that to your calendar. I think just overall, it was one of the best, if not the best, NRC events I've been to for multiple reasons, and I'll talk about that more on Thursday. Uh, but I did just want to provide a really big thank you to Ravelin, the current sponsors of the Fraudology, for giving Yeti tumblers to each person that stopped by their booth and said Fraudology. I had joked on last week's episode that I really hoped that they were just going to give away stickers, and they completely called me out about that on the booth, and I loved them for it. They were really great guys. Would shout them all out, but I can't remember all of them. I certainly remember Jamie and Brent and Madison and just a great group of people that I know my listeners enjoyed meeting in person, as with other companies that I have worked with as well. So with that, I want to share with you a little bit about what you're about to hear on this episode. I got the chance to speak with somebody who I have really admired in the fraud industry for a long time, and that is Marianne Miller. She's currently the VP of Client Experience at Prove. Marianne's been in the fraud prevention sector for I don't even know how many years, but at least 20. Some of you or a lot of you are familiar with Frank McKenna, the author of Behind Frank on Fraud blog. Frank and Marianne used to work together very closely, and Frank has often told me that I remind him of Marianne, which is one of the highest compliments I could get. And I got a chance to speak with her on stage at MRC. Our session was titled Using Phone-Centric Signals for Fraud Prevention and Higher Revenue Growth. Really, honestly, to speak with Marianne was a just a real joy. And we had mutual admiration. And nobody believed that we had just met in person that day. But, you know, thanks to the power of Zoom and LinkedIn, it felt like we'd known each other for years. And we have. I didn't press record until... I'd already spoken at first, so you guys missed me introducing myself. I think Marianne also uh, had introduced herself at that point. And I believe that kind of the first section I had talked about was just my perspective on fraud and how it's changed so much and how it's not just about payment fraud anymore. 
There are so many fake accounts in the U.S. as well as in other markets. I just talked on Thursday's episode about the Ravlin study that just came out that if you guys haven't checked that out yet, I am not just saying that because they're the sponsor of my podcast. It is really informative and has 72 pages of information that can really help where you're at with your company and better understand the industry as a whole. But one of the statistics that stuck out was that at least 20% of all accounts created in e-commerce and fintech in Mexico are fake. I am almost positive that that percentage is higher in the U.S. and in some other areas, but it's hard to quantify. So we're really seeing this huge shift in fraud over the last few years, which includes attacks on the public sector, whether it's PPP fraud or unemployment or disability in the U.S. And Marianne talks about that at the very beginning of this recording, as well as on e-commerce and fintech for all kinds of purposes. Fake accounts being created for refund fraud, for loyalty fraud, for promo code abuse, many other issues, account opening and, and all other. So it's really important to be thinking about this differently and not just focusing on chargebacks. And that was really my point on this was looking at it as if we're able to identify trusted users, we're then able to turn those into more sales and higher revenue growth while also protecting our bottom line. And those are things that business owners love to hear as well. So with that, I will say the sound quality is not the best. Uh, it was the first time I'd used that microphone and I think I just put it on like the metal stage and it was closer to me than Marianne. So you won't be able to hear her as well. But you can understand us. And so the podcast producer and I made the decision that this is really valuable information, especially for those of you who weren't able to attend the MRC. I'm also very grateful to Marianne and the MRC staff for releasing the ability to record this and put it on the podcast. I did ask permission from everyone that I needed to. So this is just a fun treat for people who missed it. I think this is the only session that was recorded to my knowledge. So hopefully there will be more of those in the future. But just please forgive me for the sound quality. It's not the best, but it is not as important as the points in our presentation. So with that, I let you listen in on my presentation with one of my fraud idols, Marianne Miller of Prove from MRC Vegas 2022. We're also seeing activity that um, I've never seen in my career around um, bad actors. Um, Checks bodies, gauge fraud, no threats, um, unemployment, insurance fraud. So I wasn't surprised recently the Department of Labor and the office made an estimate and made it a comment in, in the public domain that they think that the fraud related to unemployment fraud and unrelated to, and those of us in the fraud community believe it's closer to 400 billion. We've, we started to look at it state by state and counting numbers. We think that the OIG was just using an estimate from previous years. It was very conservative. It was very, very conservative. And the reason I'm bringing this up and why I think it's important is the bad actors that are hitting e-commerce, the bad actors that are hitting public sector, the bad actors that are hitting the bank are the bad actors. So the attacks that you're seeing on your sites, the false claims, the issues that you're seeing on your platforms are the same issues the banks are challenged with, the same issues that the government or the states are being challenged with. 
I um, just spoke to California Innovation event. 40%, 40, 40 percent of all disability coming right now in California are fraud. So it's a huge number. So what's happened is PPP is over, unemployment is, is here down, but the, you know, we all know the concept of fraud and migration. So the fraud has moved to, to the claims center in the state of California. And so the unprecedented levels of fraud that all, every state is affecting, it's just being affected everywhere. And the last topic I'll bring up, and, and this is partly where you, know, you see, um, we see every day the, the attacks on crypto and the issues of crypto. So you're seeing those attacks as well. Those are, again, the same bad actors that are hitting everyone across the industry. If they honed their skills on the platforms where they can become invisible. And for a minute, I'm going to all take a step back and just take a moment to think about our own selves as consumers. And I've been speaking to some victims of identity theft, of the unemployment insurance. In particular, I talked to someone from the state of Ohio. For the second year in a row, this person has received a 1099 from the IRS. So that means that that actor still has an account open. They're still receiving unemployment in that person's name for, for over 24 months. And this person's reported it to the state, and they reported it to the IRS. Now they're having conversations constantly with the IRS to say, it's not me. I didn't file unemployment. I don't work for that company. This is not me. This is happening everywhere. If it happens to you, let me know. I'll give you the right resources to reach out to. But it's just an example of the identity proofing issues that we have out there, the challenges we have out there as an industry as a whole. And um, Chris and I were, you know, all through the pandemic talking to each other, going back and forth. Are you know, seeing it on the e-commerce side? I'm seeing it on the digital side. And well, to add to that, you're absolutely right, they are the same people. Because I actually, during like, 2020, May, I started working with a, in my consultancy, started working with a state that was hit by unemployment fund first. And it actually really it was great that it coincided with the retailers having refund fraud. And I don't mean it that way, but just, I mean, for me, it was good because it was the same people talking on Telegram and Discord. They were you know, getting money over here, they were creating an identity over here, and then they were using it over there. And a lot of them are the same people that now on the planet front of them, they're now taking on as well as promo code and, and loyalty as well. And absolutely, they're not using their real name at the bank either. So it's across the sector. And actually, I was going to interview for the podcast, and then he got a new job with an employer that wouldn't want to speak. But he was telling me a story about how he worked a case of investigations where it really impacted every sector he could think of. And they just started pulling the thread. And it, it wasn't just e-commerce. It was auto fraud. It was state fraud, banking, all of that. And at the root of all of those things, to your point, is identity proofing and, and making up identities. And I think that's one of the biggest issues. Just on this point, and we obviously have more sites to go through, but I posted on LinkedIn about a month ago, and it was probably my most like viral post. Uh, where I kind of use the PayPal example. So PayPal at the end of, in one of their annual earnings calls, or I believe it was, it was some of their earnings call, like their early annual or not, their quarterly, they disclosed that they canceled 4.5 million accounts. To me, I think all of us in this room are sure that there are several more million there, but they tied them to a specific bot attack that was actually taking advantage of their promotional codes. 
they offered ten dollars for anyone that opened up a Venmo or a PayPal account. We know what happens there. But there were bot farms being set up really quickly. And if you think about it, that's ten dollars times four point five million. That's forty five million dollars that those guys made just by opening up accounts. Mm -hmm. And the, Marianne made this point when we were talking about this like a few weeks ago. We were on a presentation, and, and of course, they were talking about the PayPal news. Those victims have no idea that their information was used because it's not reported anywhere. And that's something that I think often we lose sight of. But additionally to that, the point that I made on LinkedIn was that a lot of technology companies, their core valuation is based on users. And I know that for fraud departments, that is one of the hardest things because you have the majority of your company focused solely on number of users because that's what your funding is based on, especially if you're VC funded in Silicon Valley or other and unfortunately, <laughs> I know from people confiding in me that in a lot of cases, if the fraud department was allowed to cancel the, the accounts that they knew were fraud, they would have 40 to 60% less users than they actually have. And that's actually kind of conservative. And so that's something that I think just those of us in technology need to be aware of and start evangelizing within our companies. As far as the fact that you know, maybe we need to be looking at trusted users, verified users, not just active users, but having more identity at the front end so you can you know, feel good about that. Because I, I made an example of PayPal because they were one of the only companies that's come out and admitted it. That's really what it is. I'm very aware of the companies that have it, but it's part of my agreement with everyone. I don't attach names with you know, issues. So, and I want to keep my friends. So <laughs> there's that. Um, we'll skip ahead to the next thing. We'll move from the dark and gray. We all have problems, right? I want, I want to make one last point. Yeah, this, just, and this, this is just because the answer to the question, how do these bad actors get away with this? Mm -hmm. Think of yourself, if a bad actor opens up a credit card, you're going to see that inquiry at the bureau, and you're going to see, you can, you can check your credit bureau report and say, oh, I didn't open up that Capital One card. And I'm speaking on capital for <laughs> and, and you can call capital, you can call the bureau, you can have it shut down, you can file an identity report. If a bad actor opens up an account at a fintech, or e-commerce, we don't have the concept of the deposit bureau in the US. You don't have any other call. You don't know your identity's been used for money laundering. You don't know your identity's been used for check fraud. You know, I always say Americans are committing crimes that they know about. You know, accounts are being opened up under our names and, and, and crime is happening. Now, the bad actors are doing it under their own names, they're doing it under synthetic IDs, but they're much bolder under another person's name. So if you can imagine what the bad actors are doing in other, other people's names. So that's the last point I'm going to make. And it's something that I'm definitely talking to part, probably the private sector and regulators about that we need as you know, the FBI to know, have a right to know if we our identities used. The e-commerce merchant in me is like, how do we report it? <laughs> <laughs> so much but I, I get it. Yeah. Now let's get to the exciting part where what are, what are we doing as far as our businesses, our e-commerce businesses? What are we trying to, during all of this heightened threat environment, what are we trying to do to make our businesses better? And so what are some of the trends, Carice, that in e-commerce that are really great for the for the shopper, great for the buyer. What yeah. So I actually was lucky enough to attend another session today. I feel like it was only one, but uh, and I was on like Google and talking about empathy one on one and how important trust with your users are. And I 
stole this race from someone else in the industry who learned it from their sports coach. But trust is earned in jobs that lost in buckets. And that goes both ways. And so we need to trust our users, but we need our users to trust us. Because trust is a currency and they will spend more when they can trust you. And also, you will, what I would like to see, and, and some of the merchants I'm working with, they're working towards it, is moving towards, let's at least have a pool of users that we've verified and we know are good. So let's let them have access to the loyalty program. Let's send more marketing opportunities. Let's, you know, if we have a special release of a product or whatever the vertical is, let's let them go in the door. Let's let them go in the door first. Let's give them the VIP treatment that they deserve because they're the ones who pay all of our paychecks. It's not the bad guys. And somebody used to call my team, like when I managed a team a million years ago. But it's still true to the same as a consultant, right? I mean, your good guys pay my invoices. So it's all important. It's something to remember. And so you know, it's really just frictionless checkout, loyalty programs. You know, having, if you have trusted users, then when they call and say, I didn't get my product, well, I mean, you know, you know them better than, you know that they are who they say they are. You know that they didn't open up 25 accounts in 25 different names and are just calling you back 25 times to say that they didn't get the item or that it was damaged or that, you know, all those other things. And one of the reasons why I lean on Mariana a lot is because a lot of the fraud can start on the banking side, whether it's account takeover or account creation or all these other things. And I think in the same way that the fraud attacks come from the banking and fintech side, the solutions should too. And in some contexts, right? And not all of them, they have more regulations and KYC or you know, all those things. But in this case, from an identity perspective, knowing Knowing that you've trusted your user and we have gone far beyond being able to verify the email because now everybody has access to the email. We've gone beyond you know, the things that we've done before. So it's time to think about new ways. That's great. So let's talk about some of those new ways. <laughs> yeah. So what I, what I like to talk about is, and, and this goes for public sector, goes for banking and e-commerce, is what are the kind of identity signals that you can start to receive um, to understand trust and to build that verified shopper, to build that trusted shopper. And, and in, that, in that scenario, behind the scenes, there's ways from your mobile phone and there's ways behind establishing um, your assurance levels and your trust levels but by the interaction of that phone and also with other authoritative data sources that you can start to build a picture of trust. But the, the challenge in the banking industry is, you know, the problem we're always trying to solve with the banking group is, is Marianne Miller's, and the information is provided in the flow, that's Marianne Miller's information that could, from a bad actor, been achieved from a data breach. Is that Marianne preventing that data, or is that a bad actor preventing that data? And that's the problem that we're trying to solve. And there are solutions out there that actually provide those kinds of key signals to start to understand that that's really narrowing in. So, for example, you can use cryptology that's um, actually working with the telcos. There's a cryptographic message that's rooted in trust. You can look at phone tenure that, that can help to start to establish trust, phone behavior 
that starts to establish trust. You can start to look at data from you know, third-party sources like utilities. And again, the data that's relevant behind the scene is relevant to your business case, to your use case, to your customer base. So that, you know, these are the kinds of things that you know. So the, 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 the phone makes phone calls. If the phone doesn't make phone calls, but it's been around for two years, it's probably a bad actor's phone. These just have a vertical. More writing meters. Yeah. So um, some of those ways that you can passively, and this is what's great about some of these approaches, is there's usually a passive way you can establish this um, identity grouping signals behind the scenes, as opposed to, in some cases, we will. We're starting to see this more, all of us, as, as, as citizens, as consumers. But we're going to be asking our driver's license out from the back to do this up. We'll start to see that. We saw the debacle with the IRS. but. That, that was just like a test of more, but when we start to see more and more routines where we're going to need to prove our identity in a digital world because it's so broke. And that's part of um, you know, what we want to establish is what are those signals that make it easier on the customer experience. Right, because especially with e-commerce, there are not as many use cases for you know, uploading driver's license and, and car receipt of friction right away. But there are some, right? Especially with apps that have real-world consequences. I mean, I signed up for Airbnb and had no problem providing them with my ID and my credit card because part of it is I want to know that other people that I'm staying in their home, I want to make sure they're trusted too, so I'm happy to be part of that. But within e-commerce, you don't want to ask for that if they're buying a pair of shoes or you know concert tickets, right? And so it's better to have more behind-the-scenes data and being able to do that behind-the-scenes so that it's frictionless. I will say that there are becoming more use cases where that can be helpful, right? There are some merchants who have, as a fallback, for you know, large dollar transactions where it's right on the bubble and you're not sure if they're good or they're bad and you've done everything you can. Where, you know, I worked with a client a couple years ago where they were actually doing this to like 40% of their merchants or their retail or their customers. I'm sorry, one week in Vegas already. They were, you know, asking 40% of their customers to send in pictures of their driver's licenses. And on top of that, their fraud department was outsourced and in a completely different country. And so it seems sketchy from a consumer perspective, right? But there are more merchants who are looking at it as, well, do we put that in place just for that extra level with manual review? And there are some solutions for that. And so there, I do think there will be more use cases for that, just as that's more secure, it's, it's faster, but it's not for everyone. And so you know, it really depends. I mean, I always say fraud, really fraud and everything depends on your vertical, your your, your customer base, your price point, your AOV, all those things. And so you, it's up to you to know what's best for your business. But those are things that are available, right? And that's why every year I come here at the Expo Hall. But that's a good thing. A lot of opportunities. You've heard me mention that Ravelin is the current sponsor of the Fraudology podcast, but I wanted to make sure that I share a little bit of information about them. Ravelin uses machine learning, but it doesn't have to be a black box. Ravelin's customer-specific machine learning models give fraud teams confidence in their understanding of where fraud's coming from and how to manage it, meaning you're blocking the bad actors and not blocking out paying customers. Unlike other fraud providers, Ravelin builds a 100% personalized model for its clients. This stops the model from being swayed by patterns in unrelated industries. 
creating more specific predictions and better performance. You can get closer to 100% payment acceptance with a custom tailored model. Visit ravelin.com forward slash blog to learn more about the custom models they build and how Ravelin's custom models translate to better results for your business. Just visit ravelin.com forward slash blog. There's no gated landing pages, just smart information on fraud and payments provided by the Ravelin team. So let's talk about kind of the use cases or move on to like, so I always, um, uh, when I talk to people in the banking sector, and I believe this for the e-commerce sector too, that security and customer experience don't need to be mutually exclusive. If you can actually provide a good customer experience and secure transactions at the same time. And an example of that is if you have these identity signals that come from a mobile phone in the background working to establish trust, whether it's a guest checkout or whether it's an actual user or shopper creating an account, you can actually create that experience with information that can be pre-filled in that flow. So this is an example. Now, some of the data points that are showing up here may not be relevant to your user flow, but you can customize that. But you can, because we know from that cryptographic exchange that's Marianne on the other end of the phone, we, we can start to establish that we know it's Marianne, so you know, we can ask her maybe just for uh, her phone number, or actually, we'll her phone number, we can exchange her. We can ask her for her date, month, and year of birth, and we can start to establish that that's Marianne in the flow and have her open up an account really easy. It's nothing more frustrating for me when I'm shopping is uh, I always go to this checkout because I don't want to create an account. But what if you created a flow that made your creating an account easy and simple, even more simple than a guest checkout. Then that way you can actually speed up the time to creation of an account, but also speed up time to shop, speed up time to check out. So this is a, a, a way that you can actually think about reimagining that shopping experience. Well, I remember I was a fraud manager, we were just so excited to know if the person who, uh, the phone number that was put in the order was actually, like, was a real phone number, mm-hmm. and who the telco was, like, that was gold to us, and so it's crazy, there's so much more information now, but we also use our phones so much more, and some of the solutions out there, and, and this you know, use case is an example, can always be scary as a consumer, but really great as a fraud professional. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is one of those things where it's like, oh, didn't know my phone sell all that information out every time I cancel a purchase. But at the same time, it allows us to be able to go back to that trusted user and know that if they're the ones who are using, they're using their phone, and you can really identify that that phone is Know, theirs and it's attack the triangulates with their information, then you can put them in the trusted user pool. And we're seeing a lot of adoption of these, uh, I call reimagining onboarding modes out there in the industry of banking, and we um, are starting to see them more across crypto. We think that this could be a revolution within the e commerce world as well, that we could definitely start to see a better flow and better uh, time to create accounts. And speaking of even better time is we all know this in the Super Bowl, but yeah, you can you can put a QR code in the environment that you want, whether it's on your website or whether it's out in the public domain, that can actually engage your customer to that easy checkout. 
So that's what's even better. So if you know if you want to really get them in, if they see something that you have, you have to offer, and then you put the QR code in front of them, then it takes them through that easy flow and that easy onboarding. It's it's really uh, makes it even better. But just wanted to mention that it's uh, an additive too that reimagining the shopping experience. So. Use, a use case, I just wanted to bring this, I know most of you are merchants, but I wanted to bring up this issuer example because if we start to have more trust and trusted identities on the issuer side, that helps us on the merchant side as well. So this is a customer that actually put some signals in for identity proofing. They have a high attack rate. That's the reason why you see so much fraud savings. But that reduced attack rate and then really help solidify that onboarding experience and solidify trusted and factual you know, card holder experience. So I just have some of the satellites up here on the slide, but we, you know, if anyone wants to kind of go into details of how, how we can do that later. Well, I think that's something that we as fraud professionals have to continually retrain our brain, those of us that have been in it for a while, because for the longest time we were focused on solving junk facts, and we were focused, uh, that was like a key KPI. And the challenge is that when you do that, a lot of times you have false positives and you're insulting your customers. And oftentimes when you insult your customer, you're essentially referring them to your competitor for life. And so it's really about building that trust between the two and making it frictionless and so that they are, so, so I think we really have to keep changing our mindset that it's not so much about finding that one to five percent, depending on your vertical, of bad guys, so to speak, but it's also about identifying the 95% good and letting them have a faster shopping experience and sending them more marketing opportunities and special things and all of that because those are the people, again, who pay your paycheck, uh, but they're also the people who keep your business running and that, those kind of talking points within, with business leaders as well also helps them calm their nerves. Uh, one of the things I've talked about on my podcast a few times is maybe we need to redefine fraud prevention departments into profit protection or you know, around that, right? Because it's not just about providing fraud, it's about you know, protecting our profits and helping our customers. And there's a few different variations of that, but just even changing the term within the company. And I know from several great listeners who provide a lot of feedback that there are conversations being had within companies because of that. And I think that's the first step when we talk about it. But that also, so often I hear people, and it's in most of us, but a lot of people who say one of the biggest challenges is actually internally. It's not externally, it's internally. And I know that from experience, and I know I've able to the best, but I've learned over the years. And I think that it's really important that when you're talking to your business leaders and showing them, hey, we can actually, by having trusted, you know, working, being able to verify our customer, we can get more LTV out of it. We can do this, that, and the other and showing them how you really actually want to do sales enablement and not sales prevention as my former CMO may have you know, created a business card for me that said chief sales prevention officer. Um, and that's not what, you know, we really should be sales enablement. And so that's really the, the mindset that I think we all have to have. To, have. Yeah. to your point, Carissa, I post a lot on LinkedIn and quoted in media. And one of my most uh, popular um, posts was recently uh, was all of us in this room, every single one of us, have the I told you so t-shirt. And uh, I really think that I recommend uh, to see all CEOs 
whether it's a CEO of e-commerce or a CEO of a bank, uh, and often, often the head of frauds get layered into the organization. I mean, there are other uh, executives and uh, they need to spend like an hour a month not getting updates on what the fraud program's you know, progression is, but just listen to their heads of fraud about what the problems are, the issues are. And, and that's something that, you know, I think I had like 15,000 views on that one, and like tons of like, we're all, we're all facing that challenge. Back to the ecosystem, this is an issue or a use case. I was watching you know, hundreds and thousands of, of accounts being opened. So I knew were fake accounts, there's some betting accounts, I never knew that accounts. When you were at the FinTech? Well, I was at the FinTech, and then what happened was I would see the, the, the uh, account go shopping, you know, go to Vegas for the weekend, and then dispute it all. And I was watching this over and over and over, and I knew these were all false claims, and I thought, these poor merchants, too. <laughs> these poor merchants. You know, they're suffering all of these chargebacks and all of these issues. And on the merchant side, they look like part of the broader first party. It's something that I had, um, I'm not trying to plug the podcast, but on the trilogy, uh, I had someone named Gil Rosenthal on that had been on the issuing side, and we talked about this a lot, and it was a really good point that something that I... I wasn't as aware of, but it's something I've heard from Marianne and other people in FinTech, especially in the digital bank sector, where they're seeing so many big accounts open, and unfortunately, they don't, depending on their risk stack and everything else, they're not always catching all of them. And so what buses are realizing, and it's smart, right? Usually, the lifetime of opening a line of credit for a fraudster is only a month, because then they don't pay the bill. But if you get to the end of the month, and you still have chargebacks on all those things, you still don't have to pay the bill. And you get another month, and another month, and another month. Mm -hmm. And that's something that is very frustrating on the merchant side, and something that, you know, I think, I, I've been talking to people today who said for, it isn't this, probably a whole other, you know, session, but I'm glad that you mentioned it because it is something that, it really speaks to just the importance of collaboration with e-commerce as well as with banking and issuers as well. And what's great again to your point earlier, Carice, is how some of the best practices are just permeating across the industry, both banking and tech. So we we talked about some of our key takeaways, and we just put a few up here on the screen. But I'm sure all of you have your own key takeaways. But we hope that this discussion's been informative. We hope that. We've learned something today. Chris and I really appreciate your time. We want to open up the floor to any questions, comments too. <laughs> we can make it an information sharing session. Yeah. With Apple leading the way with privacy and not sharing a lot of information, I mean, it's the way where they can use a doorway email. Uh, <laughs> and Google is following that with you know, Android. The question was for Marianne as far as how these signals can still come through with the operating systems, the company's owning the operating systems, tightening those down. That's a really good question. Next question. Privacy is something that we're going to hear more and more about. Privacy law in the U.S. is very nascent, or it's just it's in infancy. So we'll start seeing more and more consumer demand for privacy, certainly. Yeah. Uh, with Apple, they have you know, private relay and hide your IP. But not all, not all identity proofing signals are IP dependent. So a lot of those signals that, that you turn off when the consumer opts into those features on, the, on, on, their, on their iPhone are really just shutting off IP, either IP 
So while many, many of the uh, we don't are heavily relying on that aspect, but there will be more privacy. Uh, there'll be flows when you know, consumers are quite a bit. We'll start to see more and more of consumers wanting to have perceived control of their data. Because <laughs> we all know about the data breaches, but I, you know, I think you know, watch this space is what I say. Yeah, and I also think that there's a difference between the data that you get from the device and the data that you get from the carrier as well. So they, they both have different types of data that can be very used in this way. Yeah, yeah. Question. We place a phone every two years or so. Mm -hmm. How do you take care of that kind of handshake where my identity kind of follows through my new phone mm -hmm. and I don't get blocked because I'm being falsely identified as a new identity? Good question. I'll repeat it really fast because I know there's people in the back of The question was, most of us good consumers may change our phone every few years. And so how are you, if you're so phone-centric, how are you able to know that that is me changing my phone versus somebody else doing a SIM swap or cloning or, or anything else? Yeah, so if you're changing your device, which is, is your phone, but your phone number is staying the same, then that porting event or that SIM swap event is understood by the, by the, the trust variables. So we know it's still uh, Marianne Miller. So that's um, that's a good, that's a good question. Often, uh, what's great about that is the way this finally authenticate. You know, many many times within the banking world, we do something called device binding. In other words, to, to persist the device. It's done virtual world too, I'm sure, to understand that's a, that same kind of customer. But the banking world has to be a little bit more strict. The laptop, the phone, all the different devices together. We'll have the last question right here. So I wanted to ask, how do you feel about behavioral biometrics in, mm -hmm. in, in correspondence to this topic? Mm -hmm. Especially, I can give you an example of my father calling me every other weekend and asking me, hey, can you log into my web app? I want to do a transaction to whatever. And I'm doing it on his behalf because he can't manage the application. So how do you feel about that I technology? I and I false positives. That, that's false positive, yeah. I'm a fan of two different kinds of But again, very dangerous because someone can ask me to do that action. It's not scam, it's not fraud. It's just simply a person that is incapable of operating the flow. Right. And then. Like, yeah. it's his father doing well, that transaction. That could be yeah, yeah. really an edgy skin. I think you'll get pain and addiction suddenly your father's asking you to do a larger transaction than he normally does. You might get a phone call from the bank. Or you might even get stopped. Depends. Um, 
And, uh, but yeah. However, if you're the only person making purchases for your father, then yeah, you would be your advice. Right. You know, lots of, you know, lots of, but, but it's a good example of you know, just all the things that have to be thought of yeah. with new products, for sure. Well, thanks you guys so much for your time. Thank you. Really appreciate it. One of the questions I'm most frequently asked by fraud fighters and e-commerce leaders is for quality benchmarking data. It's almost impossible to measure the success and areas of opportunity for your team, processes, and the technology you use if you don't know how well others are performing. You need good data to make good decisions. And if your 2021 was another turbulent year, or even if it wasn't, Ravelin has the data you need on rising sales and rising fraud. Ravelin just released their 2021 survey on fraud trends and insights for merchants. This comprehensive survey was completed by over 1,700 global fraud professionals and provides insights into things like merchant perceptions of how fraud is changing and top business threats, tools, budgets, and methods for monitoring fraud, and wider environmental and industry factors, including COVID-19 and PSD2. This honestly is a very comprehensive survey. I was really impressed when I read through it, and I think you will too. All 72 pages have a lot of great information on how to do your job better, how to understand current threats and how others are fighting fraud. I really strongly believe that this is important to read, and I would be telling you that even if they weren't my sponsor right now. So if you're ready for it, go to ravelin.com forward slash fraudology or click the link to download your copy of the survey right now. The link is in the show notes. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.